Decisions about parenting, when to parent, whether to parent, have been in the news a lot lately. But stories about reproductive choices aren't just newsworthy. They've also made their way increasingly into art. I'm finding in the literature that I'm looking at in the 21st century uh, that these portrayals of abortion just um, acknowledge its ordinariness uh, just by making it a normal occurrence in women's lives. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, the decisions, the work, and the joy that goes into parenting or not parenting young children. My first guest is Mary Thompson. Mary's an English professor at James Madison University, and she's studying the role of abortion in women's life-writing narratives, both memoir and fiction. Mary, you're working on a new book that focuses on women and reproduction and modern literature. How do these more recent novels, how do they differ from just a couple decades ago? Well, uh, they normalize abortion. Um, If we think about the way in which we've had access to legal abortion, many, most of us, not everyone, but most of us, to uh, um, safe abortion, um, that abortion is so ordinary in our society today. And these books are able to capture some of that normalization of abortion. Um, There's been some interesting um, discussions in the news about film and television still lagging behind in terms of positive portrayals or even just realistic portrayals of abortion. uh, And instead, they rely on really kind of negative stigmas. And I'm finding in the literature that I'm looking at in the 21st century uh, that these portrayals of abortion just um, acknowledge its ordinariness and they destigmatize it uh, just by making it a normal occurrence in women's lives. Like Cheryl Strayed talking about it in Wild? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, that even though that memoir was about her experience hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, behind that experience was um, her personal story of having an abortion and um, healing from it, kind of that as that moment, the the unplanned pregnancy as this lowest moment in her life um, and the kind of beginning or catalyst of a change, right, that she embarked upon by hiking the trail. So abortion isn't the centerpiece of that memoir, but it underpins the entire structure of that memoir. What are some other more recent novels that are addressing this? Um, Well, I've been interested in dystopic novels um, that uh, seem to be in the vein of Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale. So I think a lot of people are familiar with the adaptation of The Handmaid's Tale on HBO. Um, And so we're also seeing more dystopias in film and pop culture and in literature. And I'm interested in um, reproductive dystopias. So Atwood's story was about a kind of not so distant future when women no longer had any social rights, but specifically they had lost reproductive control. And there's a type of um, contemporary novel that takes that sensibility and runs with it. I'm really interested in how contemporary writers of the last five or 10 years uh, anticipated uh, the recent Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. They saw it on the, the cultural horizon that reproductive rights were in jeopardy. And so they were writing stories that reflected this concern. They were looking ahead into a not so distant future and anticipating um what it would be like for women to not have reproductive control. Name a few of these titles and authors. Sure. So um, I'm looking at a novel called Red Clocks by Zumas. Uh, She sets the novel in the Northwest during a time when abortion has been made illegal as well as in vitro fertilization. Uh, And so she's interested in how women who simultaneously are trying to start families and trying to control reproduction are facing similar concerns, are facing similar social constraints. 
And then I'm looking at uh, Ramos's The Farm, which is about commercial surrogacy. Uh, this novel um, is really interesting in that it looks at commercial surrogacy from the perspective of the surrogate. Um, I think a lot of times in mainstream culture, when we think about commercial surrogacy, hiring someone to carry a pregnancy for someone else, we think of it from the perspective of the intended parent. And this novel instead looks at the industry of commercial surrogacy from the perspective of the women working within it. Little Fires Everywhere is by Celeste Eng, and this novel I find really interesting. It's set during the 1980s and 90s, I believe, if I can remember correctly, um, but it anticipates um, the result of the economic and political um, attitudes of the 80s and 90s and the um, increased interest in motherhood as a way that a successful woman might define herself and how that kind of plays out in the 21st century. And so it gives us a way of thinking back to the roots of our attitudes about motherhood and reproductive rights in the 21st century, where they may have started out in the um, 1980s and 1990s. How does it address reproductive rights and motherhood? Um, Eng's Little Fires Everywhere looks at um, a character who has an abortion, but because of her social standing, tries to hide it by claiming another character or attributing the abortion to another character of lower social standing. At the same time, there is an um, immigrant mother who um, uh, surrenders her child in a moment of personal crisis, and the child is adopted out to a wealthy, privileged family. And when the biological mother tries to re retrieve her child, she faces a lot of obstacles that are largely as a result of her economic class. Um, and then we also learn that one of the protagonists or main characters in the novel um, engaged in commercial surrogacy herself. And so all of the women's stories become entwined in the novel in a way that I find really uh, important uh, as far as thinking about where we're at in our contemporary moment that we don't make reproductive choices in isolation and the kinds of choices that are available to us are dependent upon um, other women's freedoms and other women's choices. What do you mean by that? Well, there are ways in which abortion, surrogacy, and adoption are intertwined. And I don't mean just that it's about well, if we outlaw abortion and deny abortion, there will be more babies available for adoption. It's not that simple. It's more recognizing the context in which women make reproductive choices and decisions. That's where the similarities lie. So that, um, you know, without adequate social safety nets, women are coerced, are forced into making choices, reproductive choices that they might not otherwise want to make, whether that's having an abortion or not having an abortion, putting a child up for adoption, um, becoming a surrogate, those economic forces that underpin those decisions are what we were most interested in in our book. What about the chapter where you were exploring abortion and disability? What are you finding there? So abortion for a long time has been defended um, using the language of disability, that for a long time we said women need access to abortion in the event of fetal abnormalities, right? Um, and this creates a tension or a conflict in the emergent and empowered discourse of disability rights, language of disability rights. Um, and so the 21st century novels and memoirs that I'm interested in are written by women who uh, try to think through both issues, abortion access, having the right to abortion, but also disability rights. So what does it mean to choose to have a child um, knowing it will be born disabled? Um, what does it mean to um, celebrate um, those those disabilities and still be pro-choice and still be supportive of abortion rights. I think that's so true. I think so many women support choice and abortion mm -hmm. and are very interested in knowing whether their own pregnancies will 
produce severe fetal abnormality and yet are also very supportive of disability rights. Absolutely. And probably agonize over those choices as they would agonize over ending a pregnancy if they mm -hmm. felt it had come to such a choice. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Lots of women, right, uh, support disability rights, recognize that disability is not inherently a problem. It is social attitudes and stigma against disability that is the problem. Um, and that this empowers women to, um, you know, think about taking pregnancies to term, having children with disabilities. Um, what's interesting to me in the memoirs in particular I've looked at is that the writers identify as feminist and because they come from that late 20th century kind of generation of feminists, they feel like um, they have to be pro-abortion in the case of disability. And they have to adopt this older argument that, you know, it's something that a, a woman does as an act of res social responsibility to terminate a pregnancy that will be a quote-unquote burden on society. And so these writers that I've looked at push back against that argument and try to encourage a more generous understanding, um, a more humane understanding of disability rights. Um, and I think what's also of interest to me, these writers feel a conflict with their feminism, right? That they felt as good feminists, they would, they should have abortions, right? Because of um, whatever uh, diagnosis they've uh, received about fetal health, they should have an abortion and not give birth to a child with disabilities. And yet um, they want to make the argument um, that they can still be feminist, they can still be pro-abortion and have a child with disabilities. I'm also intrigued by the area that you looked into that related to how women perceive their own motherhood when they become pregnant and yet they've lost their mothers. It's been really fascinating, and again, part of the way that I see abortion being normalized in contemporary fiction, that many characters are confronted by unplanned pregnancies, and the initial response is wanting to get an abortion or get access, but in the process of kind of being on the quest, if that's part of the narrative of looking for seeking out an abortion or funding for an abortion, they necessarily have to think about their mothers. And these characters that I'm looking at are ones who have experienced an early mother loss. So a way in which either the mother has died or has been inaccessible to the character. And the reasons for that loss are important. They are a loss of the mother through racism, through colonialism, through poverty, um, and through other sort of social factors and forces that the characters need to navigate. And in part, what it seems they're looking for is what the unplanned pregnancy has encouraged them to look for is to rethink that relationship of loss and instead to claim a kind of legacy. What do they have? What did they receive from their mother? And to go forward with that knowledge and make a decision about whether or not they're ready themselves to become mothers. Is there a psychological truism when it comes to women and their mothers when they become pregnant? I imagine, yeah. That seems to be the case in, in these novels, um, that it, there is a connection immediately, a, a greater understanding of what one's mother went through, whether, you know, it's the abortions she had or didn't have, it's the children she had or didn't have. These become important for uh, the, the characters in the novels that I'm looking at. Uh, in terms of thinking about themselves as mothers or not becoming mothers. You know, you have been doing this study and this research for so long, long before the more immediate years of lead up to the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision. So talking about this now and your work now feels very pertinent to the moment. How has it felt for you? Um, it has been sad. Uh, it has been some hope. Um, it has reaffirmed my love of literature. I am saddened by the Dobbs decision. Um, but I think what I have appreciated about the literature I'm looking at 
is it wants to tell an accurate, faithful, realistic story about abortion and to counter stigma against abortion. Um, and I think it's not just that it tells stories of abortion. Um, it's that the act of reading, I think the, the authors recognize that the act of reading is a way in which we become better listeners. Uh, I feel that we have defended abortion for so long by encouraging women who have had abortions to tell their stories, to speak up, um, and not always recognizing that's a really, really big ask, that there are a lot of women who are very comfortable talking about their experiences having abortions, but it still is its a big ask to expect women who have um, accessed the procedure to do all the defending. And I feel like we as a society need to be better listeners in order to hear abortion stories. We know that one in four women by the time they are 45 um, will have had an abortion. That means statistically there's a lot of women out there who have experience with abortion. It means that many, many of us, maybe all of us, uh, know someone who has had an abortion. But we're not necessarily aware of that because we're not particularly attuned or good at listening and listening to stories about abortion. We kind of don't want to talk about it. And if literature in some way helps us to be attuned to abortion narratives, abortion stories, um, I think that's a great service. I do have a sense of optimism when I look at some of the 21st century literature. Even the dystopic literature is so interested in the ways in which we connect, um, the ways in which women, even when we are encouraged to see ourselves as individuals and, you know, making choices for just ourselves and, you know, um, entrepreneurs, um, that we nevertheless are still all connected, that the choices that we make impact others um, for better or for worse. And that's what a lot of this literature seems very interested in exploring are the connections that still exist between us, whether they are the invisible ones or ones that are made visible, whether they are damaging connections or they are promising connections that point to a kind of solidarity. Mary Thompson, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mary Thompson is a professor of English at James Madison University. She co-edited The Politics of Reproduction, Adoption, Abortion, and Surrogacy in the Age of Neoliberalism. While COVID-19 vaccines have been available for adults since late 2020, young children didn't have a vaccine until very recently. Janice Hawkins is a nurse and a professor at Old Dominion University. She's been administering the COVID vaccine to children and shares why she believes it's so important to get even the youngest vaccinated. There has been over the last couple of decades, a bigger resistance to vaccines than we used to have. You know, when I was growing up, it was pretty common for us all to get vaccinated against everything. But I think it's because my parents saw the devastating effects of things like polio and the devastating effects of measles. So if you think about, you know, polio was eradicated from the U.S. in 1972. So parents today don't have a memory of what it was like for kids to get polio and parents really racing to get them in line for vaccines to protect them against these devastating diseases. And we, we've kind of gotten immune to that. I know, because I never hesitated with my three children to make sure they got all their shots early. And yet now... There is that hesitancy on the part of some parents. I think parents are all trying to do what's best for their children. So in some cases, we feel like that is to get them vaccinated. And then other parents may feel like there's a risk with vaccines. So we're on the same page as far as our goal is to keep our children healthy. But I, I think that those that are hesitating maybe haven't considered what the risks are of not getting vaccinated. So I think that's where I come from, is they 
there's nothing without risk. Um, vaccines themselves do have a small risk, but there is a bigger risk to not getting vaccinated. I think for me, the way I've thought about it is it really comes down to a math problem. And when you look at the math and you look at the numbers, by far, vaccines are safe and effective, and they're the best things we can do to protect our children. But yet I do understand that parents want the best information that they can get, and they want to be able to make good decisions. And they count on us as healthcare providers to be able to lead them to that. I remember when my daughters were young, the HPV vaccine had just come out, and I felt not against it, but hesitant. And I needed reassurance it wasn't some pharma thing, that it was truly good for them. And it mattered so much who I heard from who said, this is great. I agree. My kids, my two youngest were um, in that age group where they were eligible for it when it came out. And the same thing, that was one that was kind of new on the list for us. We were used to their routine childhood vaccines. And this one was one that was new to us parents. We had you know, gotten in line for all the rest of them, but our children did receive that. And I think we have found that that has been safe and effective along with all the others. Um, and it's really helped prevent that particular disease. What about the worries of young people when they heard through some sources, is it possible the vaccines are causing infertility or could cause infertility? I think that's a good question. I love that you brought that up because I almost said that when you mentioned about the HPV vaccines. That was actually yeah. the same threat that was used to try to scare people away from that vaccine back when it was first introduced. So you can imagine the misinformation that's out there, it tends to circulate around and around again. And it's kind of the same um, things that make us feel vulnerable. And so those types of things are effective when you're really trying to, you know, kind of scare someone away from vaccines. And it's the things that we worry about. So what would I say to parents is I would say that recognize that those are the same tactics that have been used before, the same responses that have been used before, and they've been proven to not be true. And I don't know of a physiological way that the mRNA vaccine could even possibly do that. There's not a mechanism for that. You know, there's so much chatter about vaccines and vaccine hesitancy, but your approach seems to be, I'm just going to take a deep listen with people and see what the fears are and see if we can tease those out. You definitely need to meet parents where they are. I think that we're not going to be able to convince parents of the safety of this without easing them into it and without helping them understand the value of the vaccine. So maybe the first step is developing a relationship. And as part of that relationship, it's understanding where the parents are coming from and what their concerns are and what barriers are stopping them from getting their children vaccinated. In some cases, maybe those are just logistical, physical barriers. It's hard to get off work. It's hard to get transportation. Vaccines aren't convenient for them. But in other cases, and in a lot of cases, it has been concerned for vaccine safety. And in those cases, we may realize that it takes more than one opportunity to meet with parents. Maybe the first time we meet with them, we talk to them about vaccines a little bit and let them know what the recommendations are. We hear there's questions. We respond to those, but we give them time to think about it and let them absorb that. And then as we become their trusted, valued healthcare provider, and that relationship continues, then the hope is that they'll start hearing that message a little stronger and we'll have more kids vaccinated. Anything that you would like to see the U.S. do differently or better than we're doing now when it comes to rolling out newer vaccines in the fall and beyond? One thing that I think we're doing a, a little bit better is we have realized that some of our messaging maybe hasn't met the parents where they are, if you will. A lot of times stories convince parents and help them understand the importance of vaccines. And so I think we're doing a little bit more storytelling. We're giving some scenarios. 
as a nurse, I am very much one that likes to look at the evidence, so I'm very drawn to the numbers and the percentages. Sharing those numbers with parents and with readers is something that I think we need to get out there, but we also need to get out there the stories and um, maybe the individual stories of how vaccines has protected this family or this child. Um, And I think that's something that we're doing better Um, for the future. I think we need to continue to make vaccines accessible. I have read that as possible, we might be able to combine it with a flu vaccine. So you can go in and get your annual flu vaccine and get a COVID vaccine at the same time. So you'd only have to get one shot. And while we've got people there, that makes that really convenient. I think the vaccine is continuing to improve. So these next iterations of it are even going to make us more boosted. What about people who feel like, you know, at this point, who needs the vaccine? If they haven't been vaccinated yet, at least they can look around and say, these variants aren't killing people. I think we'll survive without me going ahead and getting it after all. Yes, I think that has been um, a question that I've heard a lot ask is, you know, why do I need this vaccine? And I'll refer back to an article that I read this week that was a research article published in a leading medical journal. And one thing that I read in that article is that while we have had huge protection from the vaccine and it's decreased our rate of death by 58%, those numbers could be as high as 94% if we were all vaccinated. So they used a modeling projection to determine that. And they were able to take the numbers that they had and then project that onto what if we were all vaccinated, how much further protection could we have? So if we were all vaccinated, then the protectiveness of the vaccines would be more extraordinary than it already is. So I think that's one thing that we need to talk about with parents is that we're still all in this together. And when you get vaccinated, you're protecting yourself and others. Um, And this is kind of how we beat COVID ultimately. Getting vaccinated and getting children around the world access to these vaccines is very important to me. We talked earlier about polio and parents today not necessarily remembering polio and the kind of the cruel um, symptoms of it, but polio still exists in two countries in the world, Pakistan and Afghanistan. And it has declined since I graduated nursing school 30 years ago, it's declined by 99%. But without vaccines, and finishing up polio um, to have it eradicated from the planet, it could go back up in those same 30 years to increase by 99%. So I think one thing I, I wish that listeners would take away from this is that we've really got to go this last mile and support vaccines and wipe polio, for example, from the planet. That's something I would love to see happen in my lifetime as a vaccine advocate. Janice Hawkins is a board-certified clinical nurse and a nursing professor at Old Dominion University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. It's estimated there are 3,500 sleep-related infant deaths in the United States each year. This is a big improvement from decades past, but any infant death is too many. The American Academy of Pediatrics has updated its sleeping guidance to keep infants safer. The Academy's done this with the help of University of Virginia health doctors Fern Halk and Rachel Moon, among others. Dr. Halk joins me to discuss the new guidelines. Dr. Halk, you and your colleague, Rachel Moon, were part of a task force of people that updated safe sleep guidelines for babies to prevent SIDS. What primarily has changed in your guidelines from what we were advising before? The things that are new are more subtle. Um, So, for instance, we really emphasized that infants should sleep on a flat, non-inclined sleep surface. The non-inclined part is new. And that's because there have been several products on the market that were inclined sleepers marketed for infants to help them sleep. And there were a number of deaths that occurred in these sleepers. I know about those inclined sleepers, and some of them are just wonderful. They feel great to a parent trying to get a fussy baby to go to sleep. Some of them have music or rock. 
the inclining seems so enticing to a parent who is seeking sleep for a child? Absolutely. Uh, that is the downfall of these products um, because they can lull an infant to sleep. I mean, that's what a lot of parents use them for. And then the parent may leave the room, even if it's just for a minute or two. And this is when things can happen. Infants can slide down. They could get caught in the straps. They can turn and get their face into that soft bedding-like material around the infant in the product. And this is when tragedy can strike. So we are definitely very firm on and recommending that when parents put their infants to sleep, for sleep, nap time, nighttime, it should be on a flat surface, nothing in the crib except the baby, and uh, the baby who ha can have a sleeper or a swaddle sack or something like that to keep the baby warm, but we don't want bumper pads, we don't want soft uh, bedding, we don't want pillows or stuffed animals or any of these things that parents are tend to want to put in the crib to make it look nicer, but the infant doesn't need that. So don't let the babies fall asleep for any length of time, and certainly not when you're in the right there with them on an incline. Have them sleep on a crib that is flat and safe without a lot of bedding in the crib. What else? So the other recommendation is that the baby should be sleeping in a uh, Consumer Product Safety Commission, CPSC-approved product for infants. And these would include cribs, bassinets, uh, pack-and-play type uh, play yards, uh, or bedside co-sleepers, but not anything in the bed itself. So we do not want infants sleeping in bed with parents or other children or other adults. We want children, babies sleeping near the parents. So we want them in the same room in a separate sleep uh, surface. But a lot of people have nurseries just for the baby to be in a crib from day one in another room. That is very true. And certainly when they go to the stores and they see the cribs marketed and all the products, that is what they env envision. And they set the nursery up when they're, you know, mom's pregnant. But we do really still emphasize if you have the room in your own bedroom, put the crib in there for at least the first six months. Or if you can afford to get yourself a, a bassinet, a basic bassinet, it doesn't have to be expensive, again, near the bedside. The reason we say that is, first of all, research has shown that infants who sleep in the parent's bedroom and not in a separate bedroom have a lower risk of SIDS. So that's the main reason. The second reason is we still also want to emphasize the role of breastfeeding. And it is very protective uh, against SIDS. So we want moms and uh, parents to breastfeed. Um, and it's a lot easier if the baby is right there near you and you can have, you know, so you don't have to be getting out of bed and going to another room. So that can also promote the breastfeeding. We actually don't know the reason for the benefit of breastfeeding. We do know that it's highly protective. There are a, a number of theories including what you just said, which is the baby then is on the breast and is sucking harder than they would with a nipple on a, on a baby bottle. So it's possible that that action mechanically keeps the airway open a little bit more and, you know, uses those muscles a little bit more. The other possibility is the um, the benefit for infections, because babies that are breastfed have fewer infections, ear infections, colds, and so forth. And we do know that having a prior infection, an ear infection, a, a respiratory, even a diarrheal infection, is another risk factor for SIDS. So there could be that immune benefit that uh, babies who are breastfed also get. And then there is the closeness and the nurturing, but there's no evidence that that per se is protective for SIDS, and we also know that babies who are breastfed and are sleeping next to the mom but not in the bed have a, an additional protective effect than if they were bed sharing. What about bed sharing? Why not co-sleep? Well, we have very good evidence from a lot of studies that co-sleeping or bed sharing, as we call it in the report, can really increase the risk of not only SIDS, uh, which is defined as the sudden, unexpected, or unexplained uh, infant death, but suffocation deaths. We do know that infants who sleep with their parents in bed can also die from suffocation. And by that, I mean that it's a mechanical uh, suffocation or a, a closing of the airway 
due to a parent overlying the infant or an arm over the airway or something that prevents that baby from breathing. What an awful consequence. It's a terrible consequence. I mean, the good thing is that it doesn't happen all the time. You know, it's still most babies can survive that. But for those babies who don't survive it, this is a tragedy for these families. I mean, I've spoken to many parents who say, I wish I knew, or I wish I hadn't done that, or if only I could take back that moment. Of course. And that's what motivates us as the scientists, as the pediatricians, as the family doctors who are writing um, you know, these recommendations. We have to keep in mind that we want to prevent as many deaths as possible. I can't tell you how useful this is. I'm so grateful <laughs> to you. Fern Halk, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. You're so welcome. Thank you. Fern Halk is a professor at the University of Virginia School of Medicine, a UVA health physician, and a member of the American Academy of Pediatrics Task Force on SIDS. Being a working parent is tough, no matter the job, but academic parents face a particular set of challenges, from a job market that moves them away from their family and support to the prominence of conference travel. Carrie Crawford and Leah Windsor are professors and mothers of young children and the authors of the new book, The PhD Parenthood Trap, Caught Between Work and Family in Academia. Carrie Crawford is a political science professor at James Madison University, and Leah Windsor is a professor at the University of Memphis. Leah and Carrie, you're both mothers of young children and political science professors. And you fought hard for that. Was there a moment along the way where something in particular happened to each of you that drove you crazy? So later when you looked at each other, you said, we've got to write a book about this. I always recall the moment after leading a a town hall of early career scholars at an International Studies Association conference Um, When I mentioned in that town hall that I had my first child in grad school and after the town hall, a young uh, woman came up to me and asked if that child had been an accident or if I had planned to get pregnant in grad school. And I thought, well, well, that's personal. Um, But uh, what what she was alluding to was the fact that she had never known an academic, um, especially women, but also the men in her department, who had children. And she couldn't imagine that a woman grad student would intentionally have a child, especially before tenure, but perhaps maybe not have one at all. And so I I remember talking to Leah afterwards and saying, we need to write a book about this. And I think actually using those words. And for me, that was one one of a couple of moments that prompted this discussion about writing this very book. Balancing work and parenthood is hard for everybody, not just academics. What makes PhD parenthood and the the life of a professor even harder in some cases? One of the things that we discuss often amongst ourselves and with others is just that you know in the academic profession you don't get to choose your location most of the time. And so we're often uprooted from our support systems. And so you know we we live far from family, childhood friends, the things that we've known uh, all of our lives and you know we go off to grad school and then we take a job wherever one is offered and so you know obviously this this shares some of the constraints as say um, military families who don't get to choose their location or foreign service families who don't get to choose their location there are also things about academia that are are just very entrenched uh, there are patriarchal norms which can make parenthood and um, gender equity issues quite difficult. What is a patriarchal norm? Um, To take off your wedding ring when you're on the job market going to an interview or not to tell them if you're pregnant. Or so many of the women we know have been um, instructed or scolded not to have children before tenure. And what's interesting from our survey of more than 300 um, scholars, that by and large, people ignore that advice. And so even though that's, you know, kind of the pervasive norm, people are having children and forming their families before tenure. But it's still, you know, something that 
you know, bringing your children to conferences. Um, there are the, the things that men get praised for bringing their children to class or to the office, like what a good dad. But if a mom does that, you know, how unprofessional she is. So there are these double standards um, that women face. Um, you know, I would also add that what is um, sometimes unique to academia is just this pressure of the timing of the tenure track. We have this high pressure kind of early career uh, timeline that unfortunately um, corresponds with the, the biological clock in that the first six, seven years out of grad school, um, you are expected to to publish or to teach a lot of courses. Your job is not secure and you are on the path to earning that job security through your teaching, your research, your service. And you know anything that detracts from those three areas could potentially cost you your job. Of course, folks who don't have the security of the tenure track and then tenure um, face even more constraints. I'm surprised that if more and more women in this day and age and men are having babies and raising children in academia, that the system hasn't changed. You know, the reality is that there is a gap, a gender gap in tenure and promotion. You know, women tend to drop out as you ascend the academic ranks and such that we see that university leadership um, is maybe not so gender equal. One of the promising findings from our book is that, you know, when we asked people, are things better than they were 30 years ago? They said yes. But um, I always get the order of this wrong. So Carrie, it's clearly communicated, <laughs> equitably applied and transparent. Correct. That they're equitable policies, transparent policies and clearly communicated policies. And that's how you keep things fair. And that's how you keep people ascending the ranks. That's how you ensure that talented scholars don't leave. Give me some examples of policies that aren't clearly stated, equitably applied, et cetera, and how that could change by your suggestions. Well, one go-to example would be parental leave. So, you know, of course, in the U.S., we do not have federally guaranteed parental leave, paid parental leave. We have FMLA, but you don't necessarily get paid for that time. And not many people can go 12, you know, eight, 12 weeks without pay. So you know, within some college campuses, you may have a situation in which perhaps the university policy is that you have FMLA with peer coverage, but maybe one department does it one way and another does it another way. And maybe one chair, you know, decides that you, know, you won't get peer coverage, you need to come back after your FMLA and teach the rest of your classes. And so it may be the case that somebody working within a university has a different um, experience of parental leave than someone in th that same university, but in a different department. And that's a case in which you have policies that are not transparent, that are not clearly communicated, and they're perhaps not equitable. And so, you know, they're adhering to the family leave policies, but they're not applying them, you know, equitably. It's not clear how each person will access and utilize that policy. And that creates some, some gaps in, um, in protection. One of the stories that we often hear is that women especially say, well, I was fortunate to have a good department chair or a good supervisor or a good dean, or, um, you know, I had a, a generous um, unit head that was, you know, willing to work with me and, um, and do some kind of workaround. Um, and while that's generous, it, we shouldn't have to depend on the, um, you know, haphazard generosity of others um, for, you know, something that should be equitable and available for everyone. Um, the other thing that happens is that uh, for family leave, women often take lower profile or less prestigious service roles um, in lieu of teaching. And so they're not fully on leave. You're not really gone. Um, and furthermore, those are not the kind of assignments that foster women's careers and that open them up to more opportunities. Um, the other issue, too, is that the current system treats parenthood as beginning when the child arrives on the scene, like the day that you give birth or the day that the child comes home um, from adoption. And as anyone who has adopted or, you know, gestated a child knows, it starts long before that. Mm. Um, you know, some people face really um, intensive um, 
fertility treatments or, you know, prolonged periods of infertility, maybe, you know, months or years of that, that affects their productivity. Um, You know, we cover really challenging topics in the book, like infant loss and child loss. Um, And not everyone knows, and and it may not be available everywhere, but bereavement leave policies um, can also support families um, at the university. And so, Knowing that these things are available, but also acknowledging that family formation is not just exclusive to the first six weeks. I mean, I would venture to say those first six weeks while challenging are nothing compared to the onslaught of illnesses and colds and, you know, hand, foot and mouth and RSV and now COVID and whatnot. Um, This also applies broadly to caregivers, you know people who are caring for an ill spouse or parents, um, you know, the sandwich generation caring for both children and, you know, aging parents. Um, It's called the PhD parenthood trap, but it really is bigger than that because it's about caregivers and it's about anybody that doesn't fit the traditional, you know, um, tweed elbow patch, you know, feet up on the desk in the office, academic, you know, meme, uh, is much broader than just women and families. You've surveyed hundreds of other academics about their experiences with parenting and family formation. Could you share with me several of the stories they told you? It definitely seems like the survey touched some nerves um, in, in a way that as we were reading through these responses to the survey, it seemed like this was a cathartic experience for a lot of people. So some wrote about how in their graduate programs, um, who, people who entered graduate programs as parents, um, they had no accommodation. There was no flexibility for missing class for a sick child. Uh, There's no flexibility with respect to deadlines. And so there was a lot of very raw emotion concerning the academy and, and the picture that the academy has of graduate students and who they should be and how they should be unattached and able to focus 100% on reading every hour of the day. And, you know, that's just not reality for most people, even if you don't have children. So a number of our our survey responses looked at, you know, the experience of graduate students. And as Leah mentioned earlier, some of them highlighted just kind of the um, serendipitous meeting with a benevolent mentor and how, you know, somebody may have had a mentor who took them on as a research assistant, in essence, to provide parental leave for them and not have them do any work. And that is wonderful. And, you know, those those kinds of people should be praised. And, you know, they are absolutely, you know, just what we should all perhaps aspire to be. But our takeaway is that we shouldn't have to depend on those serendipitous meetings, the idiosyncratic situations where somebody happens upon a mentor who's willing to take them in and provide for something that the university refuses to provide. And the same on up the ranks. So the non-tenure track responses that we got looked at, you know, the difficulty of returning to the classroom immediately upon giving birth, um, not having any kind of support. So one of the the vignettes talks about, um, you know, giving birth uh, on one day, coming home the next day, and then being back at work the following day. Um, you know, one of the things that that happens um, in academia is that when you get grants and you're the primary or principal investigator on a grant, um, there's really no mechanism to replace you, you know, even if you die. Um, and so uh, this person was in that role and just went back to, you know, zooming into meetings and had divided time between you know, caring for the newborn and um, carrying on the full responsibilities of running a research lab. Um, Many of the stories focused on on the challenges they faced in breastfeeding. One woman who said that uh, she had a a nanny watching the child in her office while she would teach class and, you know, would run up during break and let the, the child breastfeed until somebody complained that there was a child on campus and then the partner had to come to campus with the baby during the break um, in the evening Um, or just the challenges that people face in expressing milk um, at conferences or in between class breaks. Um, You know, it's all just a lot, a lot more complicated. There's a lot more moving parts, especially when you're dealing with breast pump parts. 
Um, I read one story where a woman said she finally, late in her pregnancy, had to admit to colleagues that she was pregnant, and there was great alarm on the part of the men in the department. (laughs) Yeah, and you know, that's the funny thing. I mean, we've the the men who have read and participated in um, the writing of this book and in the workshops and the um, the roundtables have been incredibly supportive. And there are so many so many allies uh, in what we're doing. And I think that the needle is moving. But on the other hand, you know, we reached out to a lot of our men colleagues um, to write vignettes, and mostly the response was but what would I say, right? And so I think that there needs to be more deliberate reflection and engagement. Mentorship has largely been by women for women. And so there hasn't necessarily been an on-ramp for men allies. And so partly this book um, can serve as an on-ramp for them to understand what our experiences have been and to share their experiences and see how we can work together to improve things. Well, Carrie Crawford and Leah Windsor, thank you so much for sharing with me on With Good Reason. Thank you. Thank you so much. Carrie Crawford is a political science professor at James Madison University, and Leah Windsor is a professor at the University of Memphis. They're also both mothers of young children and the authors of the new book, The PhD Parenthood Trap, Caught Between Work and Family and Academia. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.